Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And on this podcast, we'll be talking about everything to do with mental health, including the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the potential causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis, and better informing the general public about mental health-related issues, All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome again. For those of you who are regular and long-time listeners, appreciate your tuning in. Uh, This podcast was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, October 28th, 2015. And... We will be turning the clocks back soon. Hope you're getting adjusted to the shorter days. Again, a reminder for those of you who suffer from seasonal mood disorders, uh, it would have been good to start going to bed 15 minutes earlier or so, uh, a little more each night to uh, make sure your body doesn't have too hard a time adjusting to the time change. And during this fall and winter, If it happens to be sunny outside in the morning, even if it's cold, try to take advantage of that early morning sunlight when it's there. That'll help stave off those winter short day doldrums. All right, well, as far as what's new and important since the last time we got together, I want to start with a new depression Diagnosis and treatment, or at least a proposed way that's new to diagnose and possibly, uh, therefore, pointing the way towards new treatments. Uh, These researchers at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem think that major depression is believed to be caused by abnormalities in immune cells of the brain. And this potentially could revolutionize next-generation psychiatric medication treatment. And boy, could we use next-generation psychiatric medication treatment for depression right about now. Um, I think we've milked this current generation of depression medications for all they're worth. And that still leaves a good portion of people who suffer from depression not feeling well and uh, an even bigger portion of those under treatment whether they're feeling better or not suffering with a lot of uncomfortable side effects so if this research did pan out and did lead to a distinctly different way of diagnosing and treating depression it would be a tremendous tremendous help Therefore, let's examine what they found. They're talking about microglia cells in the brain. 
These cells act as the first and main form of active immune defense of the central nervous system. And they may be a cause uh, or key to the cause of depression. And again, this latest theory potentially could open the door to development of a new generation of antidepressant medications. Now, we know glial cells are there to help support and provide uh, function and, and structural support, perhaps even nutritional support for brain cells. Major depression, which afflicts one in six people at some point in their life, one in six, it's the leading cause of disability in the world. This is worse than cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, cancer, and HIV AIDS combined. Now, <clears throat> what exactly does major depression mean? Well, just a quick brief reminder. The core of the diagnosis would be extremely sad or depressed mood all day or just about the whole day, every day for 14 days in a row or longer. If it doesn't meet that all day, every day for 14 days in a row threshold, it's not considered major depression. And there has to be, in addition to that stubbornly persistent low mood for two weeks solid, just complete loss of interest in the usual activities. Now, in this uh, review paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, Trends in Neurosciences, researchers suggest that progress in the understanding of the biology of depression has been slow, very true, requiring expanding beyond the abnormalities in the functioning of neurons. What they're saying is that up until now, all our ideas about what is the cause of depression and how and why the antidepressant medications that we have work has to do with this uh, misfunction or malfunction of, of brain cells. But the contribution of other cells in the brain, the microglia, as they're called, are often neglected by researchers, and they may be more relevant in causing depression. Uh, <clears throat> the title of the article was Depression as a Microglial Disease. Recent research at this lab and elsewhere finds that some forms of depression may result from these malfunctioning other brain cells besides neurons called microglia. But this doesn't mean that all types of depression or other psychiatric diseases are originated by abnormalities in these cells. <clears throat> if this research pans out and it would change the development of antidepressant medications, uh, a great, that would be a great benefit. As I said before, the, the medications we have now don't always have the desired effects, so there's an urgent need to discover novel biological mechanisms and drug targets for diagnosing the root cause of depression and for treating depressed patients appropriately. The Hebrew University researchers claim that diseased microglia can cause depression 
and drugs that restore the normal functioning of these cells can be effective as fast-acting antidepressants. <clears throat> I would love to know what they mean by fast-acting antidepressants. None of them are particularly fast-acting at all. In fact, it's uh, rare that people feel any different at all, any, any measurable improvement before at least two weeks after they start taking them. Microglia comprise 10% of all brain cells. And again, they are the brain's immune cells. They fight infectious bacteria and viruses in the brain. They also promote repairing and healing processes of damages caused by brain injury and trauma. <clears throat> and views on the purpose of microglia have dramatically changed in brain research over the last decade. Uh, we, we now know that these cells play a role in the formation and fine-tuning of the connections between neurons, the synapses, that's the gap between brain cells that, uh, across which chemical messengers uh, travel through and therefore communicate messages from one brain cell to the next and the next and so on. And forming these connections between brain cells takes place during very early brain development and these uh, connections are changed throughout life and these forms of uh, connections and how they're supported and changed are important for normal brain and behavioral functions, including not just mood, but cognitive abilities like attention and memory, and even the sensation of pain. Studies in humans using post-mortem brain tissues or special imaging techniques as well as studies in animal models of depression, demonstrated that when the structure and function of microglia change, these cells can no longer regulate normal brain and behavior processes, and this can lead to depression. Indeed, changes in microglia occur during many conditions associated with a high incidence of depression, including infection, injury, trauma, normal aging, and autoimmune diseases of the central nervous system, such as multiple sclerosis, and also neurogenerative, <clears throat> sorry, neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. In these conditions, the microglia assume an activated state in which they become enlarged and rounded and secrete compounds that orchestrate an inflammatory response in the brain. This is comparable to the reaction of white blood cells in the peripheral circulation outside the brain. The shape and function of microglia can be also changed following exposure to repeated long-standing unpredictable psychological stress which is one of the leading causes of depression in humans. Research recently discovered that following exposure to such stress, some microglia die and the remaining cells appear small and degenerated. 
<clears throat> According to this new theory, either activation or decline of microglia can lead to depression. Therefore, the same class of drugs cannot treat the disease uniformly. Perhaps a personalized medical approach could be adopted in which the status of the microglia in the individual patient should be established first, and then, based on that assessment, treatment with drugs that either inhibit the overactive microglia or stimulate the suppressed microglia should be employed. You know, this is fascinating work, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done before we take this knowledge and translate that into new treatments for depression. Stay tuned. Uh, I'll bring you more news if this approach bears fruit. In the meantime, time for our first commercial break here on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after that. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news updates. 
Well, in the previous segment, we were talking about how researchers think immune cells in the brain are related to depression and uh, through some sort of um, abnormal response. And next, I'm going to bring you an article about how another devastating chronic psychiatric disease besides depression, this time schizophrenia, also may linked may be linked to inflammation in the brain. Uh, as you know, schizophrenia, one of the most disabling uh, mental illnesses, is characterized by psychotic thinking, such as delusions and also hallucinations, uh, total lack of volition or motivation, uh, lack of mood regulation, uh, and uh, it's very, very devastating. It's uh, often the case that people cannot uh, productively support themselves, and uh, unfortunately, patients with this illness are stereotyped as being prone to commit acts of violence, which is actually exceedingly rare. It's much more likely that they would become victimized in a violent way. If there is concurrent substance abuse, that does increase the risk of violence. But let's get to the study about brain inflammation and its link to schizophrenia. Uh, a study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry recently is the first to find that immune cells are more active in the brains of people at risk of schizophrenia as well as those already diagnosed with the disease. <clears throat> the finding could completely change our current understanding of schizophrenia, raising the possibility that testing people most at risk of the disorder ahead of time could allow them to be treated early enough to avoid its most severe symptoms. So if you find this immune overactivity before they start showing symptoms, perhaps you could intervene. Uh, researchers at <clears throat> the uh, Imperial College of London, in collaboration with uh, multiple centers, used positron emission tomography, or PET scans, to, of the brain to measure levels of activity of immune cells in the brain. And yes, these are the ones we were talking about in the earlier segment and we were talking about the uh, research that was done in Israel on depression, the microglia cells, uh, which, as we talked about before, respond to damage and infection in the brain. And they're also responsible for rearranging the connections, the synapses between brain cells, so that they work as well as possible. Now, <clears throat> the team of researchers looking at schizophrenia and inflammation response from microglia took a group of 56 people, including those already diagnosed with schizophrenia, those at risk of the disease, and those with no symptoms of the disorder nor uh, at risk of it. And they found that <clears throat> activity levels 
of these microglia cells in the brain increased according to the severity of symptoms in people with schizophrenia and that people with diagnosed schizophrenia had the high levels of activity of these immune cells in their brain. It was previously unknown whether these cells become active before or after the onset of the disease. <clears throat> now that we know it happens before the disease actually manifests itself, this is what presents uh, the possibility <clears throat> of earlier intervention. And it is a promising study as it suggests that the inflammation may lead to schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. And uh, now researchers aim to test whether types of anti-inflammatory treatments can target these reactions, uh, potentially leading to new treatments or even prevention of the disorders already. Uh, schizophrenia, like other mental health disorders, is a very complex disease which we know is caused by an interplay of genetic, behavioral, and other contributing factors. And this research adds to a growing body of information that inflammation in the brain could be one of the factors contributing to a range of disorders, including depression that we talked about earlier on tonight's podcast, Alzheimer's disease, and others. And uh, so with this new knowledge targeting reactions of the microglia cells, this potentially could lead to new treatments. So, so far, the two articles we've talked about are both about microglia cells in the brain and how uh, trying to uh, learn more about their reactions can give us new insights into the causes and therefore potential new treatments for now depression and schizophrenia. Very exciting stuff. Um, I promise you, it wasn't too long ago before brain scientists absolutely paid no attention to microglia at all, either didn't understand what their function was or didn't think it was important in any case. And uh, the focus has exclusively been on the neurons, the brain cells themselves. Uh, it would absolutely be a revolution in brain science and neurologic and psychiatric me medicine uh, if it was discovered that the microglia are playing a major role in these brain disorders. Well, <clears throat> again, uh, there's going to be a very long gap between this basic science research and to see uh, whether and if it translates into any new treatments for these psychiatric illnesses and, and how long that may take. But I'll be sure to keep you up to date if any new developments occur that are important. Well, next up on psychiatry today, you know, uh, marijuana smoking is becoming increasingly accepted. More states are um approving medical use of marijuana, and even several have approved uh, recreational use. Um, well, I say approved. I should clarify the decriminalization of it. 
Um, ironically, it's still a federal law violation uh, to use it for any purpose at any time, but um, <clears throat> the Justice Department have made it very clear they're not going to go after people who are in compliance with state laws, even if those differ from federal statutes, uh, a very strange situation. Uh, I make no bones about the fact that, um, you know, I'm old-fashioned, I'm old-school. Um, I don't believe it is safe to use marijuana for any purpose. And, uh, you know, it's certainly not decriminalizing recreational use. That's one thing. But to ignore the consequences of letting it be easier to obtain and use marijuana and, um, you know, not to do more to discourage its use and talk about the dangers, I think, is very irresponsible. Uh, as far as medical marijuana, there are other forms of it that can be used successfully, apparently, to treat some chronic diseases. For example, there's the cannabis oil, uh, which has been used to treat certain childhood cases of intractable seizure disorders, and that was even approved here in Georgia. And I'm all for some families who can't get their children any relief otherwise uh, to allow that to be used to treat them. But cannabis oil, the treatment of that and other chronic diseases is quite a different story than just, you know, smoking marijuana for um, <clears throat> recreational use. So I found this article about how marijuana use has more than doubled between 2001 and 2013. And uh, not unexpectedly, there's also been an increase in marijuana use disorders during that time. So I would like to present that data to you. The estimated prevalence of adults who used marijuana in the past year more than doubled in the United States between 2001 and 2013 to 9.5%. Uh, this article was recently published in the journal JAMA, Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. <clears throat> Laws and attitudes about marijuana are changing. 23 states have medical marijuana laws and four have legalized it for recreational use. Researchers from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in Rockville, Maryland, used nationally representative data on past year prevalence rates of marijuana use, marijuana use disorder, and <clears throat> marijuana use disorder among marijuana users in the United States. The data came from the 2001-2002 National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions and the 2012-2013 follow-up on that study. The prevalence of previous year marijuana use climbed to 9.5% of adults in 2012-2013, up from 4.1% in 2001-2002. So there's your more than doubling during that time from 4.1% to 9.5%.
The increases were particularly notable among women and individuals who were black, Hispanic, living in the South, and middle-aged or older. Now, obviously, this is bound to have public health implications, uh, which those who wish to uh, relax the laws re regarding marijuana use, uh, I don't think pay enough attention to. Uh, before we get to that in more detail, I'm going to have to take another commercial break here, so we'll be back with that and more after the break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. And we're talking about the doubling of the rates of marijuana use disorders that took place between 2001 and 2013. Um, now, the prevalence of a diagnosis of past year marijuana use disorder, including marijuana abuse or dependence, uh, increased from 2.9% in 2012, 2013, up from 1.5% 2001 to 2002. That also doubled what we talked about before, just the marijuana use doubled. Uh, during that time, so the marijuana use disorders likewise doubled, making sense, right? So that means nearly three of every ten Americans who use marijuana had a diagnosis of a marijuana use disorder. Well, you know, what's the difference? I mean, there is a difference when you're talking about any addictive or abusable substance, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, what have you, between just using the substance and having a diagnosable disorder because of your use. 
Usually the major distinguishing factors are um, excessive use, uh, very frequent use, uh, continued or repeated use despite adverse consequences from their use, things like that. Now, <clears throat> so this was approximately 6.8 million Americans had a diagnosis of a marijuana use disorder. And the groups, the uh, ethnic groups with notable increases during that time included individuals aged 45 to 64. <clears throat> I wonder if these are just uh, younger users aging into that group, uh, you know, hippies coming of age, as it were. And those individuals who were black or Hispanic um, with the lowest incomes or living in the South. Um, so among marijuana users, the prevalence of a marijuana use disorder decreased to 30.6% in 2012-2013 from 35.6% in 2001-2002. And because there was no increase in the risk for marijuana use disorder found among users in fact, there was a decrease. Uh, the increase in prevalence of marijuana use disorders can be attributed to the increase in marijuana users. All right, so in other words, I know this you know, epidemiologists are, are not the most straightforward bunch, all right? So to try to make sense of all these confusing-sounding statistics, what it means is that while the overall uh, incidence of marijuana use disorders increased, uh, rather decreased, I'm sorry, now I'm adding to the confusion. Let me try that again. The overall prevalence of marijuana use disorders decreased. However, when you look at the fact that the number of marijuana users doubled uh, among anyone who used marijuana in the previous year, according to the survey, the use of uh, marijuana led to disorders of marijuana use in, again, uh, twice as many people. So in summary, while many in the United States think prohibition of recreational marijuana should be ended, this study and others suggest caution and the need for public education about the potential harms in marijuana use, including the risk for addiction. As is the case with alcohol, many individuals can use marijuana without becoming addicted. However, the clear risk for marijuana use disorders among users, which is approximately 30%, suggests that as the number of United States users grows, so will the numbers of those experiencing problems related to such use. This information is important to convey in a balanced manner to healthcare professionals, policymakers, and the public. That was the summary conclusion that I just read to you of this study. Again, it was published in Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, a recent issue, and this is from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Uh, despite the sound of that organization, it is not a government organization. It's a private foundation, 
uh, researchers. <clears throat> uh, however, I'm sure if anyone were to ask, the uh, NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health, which is uh, a subdivision, as it were, of the National Institutes of Health, I'm sure they would heartily concur, uh, as do I. You know, however, one cannot ignore the fact that the pendulum has swung far in the other direction and the <clears throat> millennial generation and, and the younger people coming in behind them have much more, much more relaxed attitudes about marijuana use. Um, and, uh, you know, laws are changing in more and more states. You cannot somehow stuff the genie back into the bottle. And uh, those of us who concur with the NIAAA's report that I just uh, read the conclusion to you uh, are left to simply watch and observe as the inevitable adverse consequences of this relaxation about attitudes of marijuana take place um, and... It uh, hopefully will not become worse, uh, but uh, doubling in 10 years um, is certainly a very ominous sign. Okay, well, let's now take a look at a uh, child and adolescent psychiatry update here on Psychiatry Today. Uh, longtime listeners to this podcast will know that I feel passionately about trying to combat Bullying among children and adolescents, uh, it is a form of trauma and abuse. And uh, there are those who argue and have reached out to me and told me that even referring to it, bullying trivializes it, and I, I tend to agree with that. Um, <clears throat> so this latest article talks about the roadblocks to mental health services for adolescents affected by bullying. Nearly one in three United States adolescents are affected by bullying. Nearly one in three, which places them at risk for health problems, including attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, depression, and self-harm. Now, the inclusion of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in that list I have to admit it's a little bit surprising. That is decidedly uh, a biologically based and genetic disorder. Um, there's so much evidence to show that ADHD, as it's called, is uh, biologically based. There are many studies showing differences in the brains of children and adolescents with ADHD versus those who don't have it. And there's certainly very, very strong genetic connections. Uh, you can basically follow uh, ADHD genetically right through the males in a family tree. Uh, and it's not as if the females are unaffected. They certainly are. So my personal take on why ADHD would be found to be uh, a greater risk for adolescents who are bullied is that I think it's the other way around. I think somehow or another that adolescents with ADHD are more vulnerable to being bullied, perhaps because of some aspects of the ADHD itself, uh, 
not just the distractedness, but the impulsivity uh, and irritability, hard to say. Regardless, however, the, the main point of this article is that unfortunately fewer than a quarter of these teens receive help, less than a quarter. And new research identifies some of the reasons why. Uh, that's, that's very sad when you're talking about less than a quarter of affected teens get the help that they need, but out of all U.S. adolescents, it happens to almost a third of them. This study <clears throat> was presented on October 24th at the, or scheduled to be presented on that day at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference and Exhibition in Washington, D.C., and the study surveyed 440 students in high school and middle school in a county in North Carolina, mirroring national trends, an average of 29% of the respondents reported being bullied in the past, uh, hence the one in three statistic. Among 11 to 14-year-olds, 54% reported being bullied compared with 46% of those 15 to 18 years old. Researchers identified 28 barriers to mental health services in the study. 28, wow. 11 of which were specific to respondents who experienced prior bullying. Chief among these obstacles to getting mental health services was a lack of adequate screening and counseling by medical providers. What they mean by that is Okay, so this kid who's being bullied is in front of a medical provider for some other unrelated reason or maybe because of something that does relate to the bullying, but they're not being asked the question. There's not screening being done. Are you being bullied at school or elsewhere? Other obstacles included school system barriers such as inaction by educators and poor enforcement of investigation procedures, and inadequate school follow-up and communication with parents. So let's take a look at that. Inaction by educators. Well, you know, uh, the attitude of teachers and administrators is, well, these are kids, and this is just something that they have to go through, and they have to work it out among themselves. No, uh, bullying is a form of trauma, a form of abuse, and should not be tolerated by teachers or administrators. And then poor enforcement of investigation procedures. Right, so what's meant by that is by now there are policies and investigation procedures of complaints of bullying in place, but they're not always being properly followed. And then inadequate school follow-up and communication with parents. So even if there is bullying identified going on in the schools, there's not adequate follow-up and communication with parents about it. All right, quickly I have to run off to take a commercial break. Right back with more. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to America's WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for mental health related news. Just to recap what we were talking about before the break, uh, a study documenting the roadblocks for bullied adolescents to get mental health services. Uh, First of all, medical providers who see these kids who are not screening them for problems due to bullying, Uh, educators who don't take action, who don't follow the enforcement or investigation procedures that may be in place, and then educators who don't follow up on these investigations and uh, procedures with the kids' parents. All right, now the study was funded by the American Academy of Pediatrics Community Access and Child Health Planning Grant. It has major implications for improving access to mental health services for victims of bullying, which uh, should become part of the normal conversation in the doctor's office. Doctors, parents, and school officials should also work together to address bullying when it occurs and to make sure mental health services are accessible when needed. Schools also need training programs that include frequent evaluations to ensure quality standards are consistently met. Overall, improving communication between medical providers, school officials, and parents would allow for a team approach to bullying which would improve mental health screening and access to services. Well, I personally have to applaud the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, This is their own study, their own conclusion, without contribution from any 
uh, psychiatry or psychology group or association, although <clears throat> I'm quite certain uh, the uh, corresponding association of child and adolescent psychiatry, uh, an organization among my colleagues, applaud these findings and agree with them wholeheartedly. And uh, if you have young children in school or adolescents in school and you feel passionately about this issue, I strongly encourage you to discuss this with your pediatrician. Do they screen their patients for issues related to bullying? And if so, why not? And uh, they should be reminded of these latest American Academy of Pediatrics findings. Uh, advocate in your child's school uh, for all educators and administrators to take action when there is bullying and make sure there are proper investigation and enforcement regulations in place, that these procedures are always followed properly, and that there is adequate and appropriate follow-up and communication when these incidents are identified and investigated, including uh, reach out and communication with parents. Uh, <clears throat> the tide definitely is turning uh, from just ignoring this as an inevitable rite of passage of childhood and adolescence to a public health issue, which is what it is and what it needs to be seen as and what it needs to be treated as. Uh, still a lot of progress to go, but fortunately, a lot of progress has been made. All right, let's take a look at a somewhat lighter subject. What does music listening habits, what do music listening habits tell us about one's mental health? Well, one study says that brain imaging reveals how neural responses to different types of music really affect the emotional regulation of people. The study purportedly proves that especially men who process negative feelings with music react negatively to aggressive and sad music. <clears throat> emotion regulation is an essential component to mental health. Poor emotion regulation is associated with psychiatric mood disorders such as depression. Clinical music therapists know the power music can have over emotions and are able to use music to help their clients to better mood states and even to help relieve symptoms of psychiatric mood disorders like depression. But many people also listen to music on their own as a means of emotion regulation and not much is known about how this kind of music listening affects mental health. Researchers decided to investigate the relationship between mental health, music listening habits, and neural responses to music emotions by looking at a combination of behavioral and neuroimaging data. The study was published in August in the journal Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. Some ways of coping with negative emotions, such as rumination, which means continually thinking over negative things, are linked to poor mental health, 
It's not hard to see. That's not a very adaptive way of coping, right? Well, researchers wanted to learn whether there could be similar negative effects of some styles of music listening. You would normally think that listening to music would be a way of combating or negating negative feelings uh, rather than to uh, prefer certain types of music when feeling negatively and have that music reinforce or worsen those negative feelings. Uh, but let's take a look at what the researchers did. The participants in the study were assessed on several markers of mental health, including depression, anxiety, and neuroticism, and reported the ways they most often listened to music to regulate their emotions. Analysis showed that anxiety and neuroticism, which, by the way, neuroticism, I think, is uh, a very antiquated and outdated and pejorative term uh, for people who just tend to be some parts anxious, uh, other parts perhaps uh, needy and and not very self-assured or independent. In any case, these participants... um, tended to listen to sad or aggressive music to express their negative feelings, especially men. And they found that this style of listening results in the feeling of expression of negative feelings not necessarily improving the negative mood. To investigate the brain's unconscious emotion regulation processes, the researchers recorded the participants' neural activity as they listened to clips of happy, sad, and fearful sounding music using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. This is a brain imaging technique in which you can see activity in certain, in any area of the brain that you're interested in measuring in real time, and you can image the brain while people are engaging in a certain task or listening to certain sounds or uh, thinking certain thoughts, uh, what have you, to really hone in on what areas of the brain are being affected by uh, certain mood states. Analysis showed that males who tended to listen to music to express negative feelings had less activity in a brain region called the medial prefrontal cortex. In females who tended to listen to music to distract from negative feelings, there was increased activity in the same area. Now, the medial prefrontal cortex is active during emotion regulation. So it makes sense that you're going to see a change in activity there. The results show a link between music listening styles and this activation of the medial prefrontal cortex, which could mean that certain listening styles have perhaps long-term effects on the brain. I think before that conclusion is drawn, more work needs to be done. Uh, But the conclusions of the study were that a researcher said, we hope our research encourages music therapists to talk with their clients about their music outside their session and encourages everyone to think about how the different ways they use music might help or harm their own well-being. 
I wish the article talked more about this gender difference. In other words, uh, you know, why would it be that men tend to uh, listen to music that reinforces their negative feelings as sort of wallowing in it, as it were. It's a sort of more lay term to describe ruminating, whereas women tend to use music listening more adaptively to try to combat negative feelings. Like, uh, to me, that would seem to be the better idea, the more adaptive way to cope with negative feelings and stress. Let me listen to some good music to distract myself from these feelings. Uh, and then why why do guys take the opposite approach on just feeling bad or feeling down? Let me pick some music that goes with that mood. Well, interesting stuff. Hopefully, we'll glean some more insights uh, into that with uh, future research. And next on Psychiatry Today, a stress in the workplace update. Can work stress be linked to stroke? Uh, this is not the first time by far that I've talked about the links between work stress and cardiovascular disease and other illness on this podcast. But yes, high stress job can be linked to higher risk of stroke. Uh, an analysis published October the 14th in Neurology. Uh, <clears throat> it's been linked to heart disease, stroke, somewhat inconsistent results. But this study definitely found that higher stress job can lead to stroke of course, it doesn't help if you have poor eating habits, you smoke. Um, the study looked over almost 140,000 people who were followed from between 3 to 17 years. So that's why they got good data. And uh, the job demands these folks dealt with included time pressure, mental load, coordination burdens. Interestingly, they, they didn't look at more obvious factors like physical labor or total hours worked. Uh, passive jobs have low demand and low control, like a janitor or a miner. Uh, lower stress jobs, low demand and high control, like a scientist or an architect. There are high stress jobs in service industries, like waitresses and nurses' aides. And then jobs with high demand and high control, like doctors, teachers, and engineers. Bottom line is those with higher stress did have a higher risk of stroke than others, and women uh, also had a higher risk compared to men. So definitely we need to pay more attention to work-related stress and the health problems it can cause. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time. And thanks again for listening, and good night. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.